Uh, we're going to talk a bit about the Conservative Party. It was probably the last. It was probably I think the last round of federal polling that we're going to see, uh, and certainly for the summer. Uh, and numbers are showing that the Conservative Party of Canada and its leader Aaron O'Toole falling are just falling way behind the governing governing Liberals. In the second half of June, several polling firms measured the LPC, the Liberal Party, leading the Conservatives by double digits nationally. To speak about this, I'm joined by Brian Lilly, the political columnist for the Toronto Sun. Hey, Brian. Good to be with you, George. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So how how did it get so bad for the Conservatives? Uh, vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. Uh-huh. That's what it came down to. Um, you know, a month earlier, those same polling firms had... Uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals three points apart. Now, the only poll that I've seen on that front is uh, Leger, which last week released a poll, and it was actually at that point the most recent one, Mm -hmm. still had them three points apart. But others are saying that it's, uh, you know, 10, 12 points difference. And the only thing that happened is that more people were getting their vaccines, more people were feeling good about themselves and, and where the country's headed. Hmm. But, uh, you know, so Leger is, I just looked it up, they are the most recent poll. Nanos is, uh, uh, was a couple of days before them, but they've got a 15-point gap almost, 14 and a half. Uh, Abacus has a 12-point gap. And uh, Ipsos, is, which is getting a few uh, few weeks old now, is a 12-point gap as well. So when things weren't going as well, people were turning on Justin Trudeau. Now that uh, things are opening up, they're like, oh, okay, I'm fine with it again. Hmm. But what it tells me is that the electorate is kind of fluid. They don't really know a lot about Aaron O'Toole. There's mm-hmm. a lot of polls showing that people don't have a favorable impression of him. But the biggest category for Aaron O'Toole is, I don't know. <laughs> That's a challenge for a politician, for sure. And because he wasn't like a celebrity candidate, uh, he came in there and sort of won somewhat surprisingly. And also, they they haven't really sat. I mean, he's he hasn't been able to be in, in he's not in, he's, he just hasn't been able to perform in the way that a normal process would be with the house sitting and all those things. Every political leader in the, who's not in power during the pandemic has had trouble punching mm-hmm. through. Here in Ontario, for example, um, we also had an opposition leader uh, elected in the pandemic. He was elected one week before we went into full lockdown. His name is Stephen Del Duca, but if you ask the Ontario public, they don't really know him. And he's had great difficulty breaking through. He also doesn't have a seat in the legislature. That's even tougher, uh, but yeah. Andrea Horvath, who's the leader of the official opposition and the, the new Democratic Party leader, she hasn't been able to break through. And you would think, based on some of the news reporting yeah. and headlines, that Ontario Premier Doug Ford is Th- he's just a disaster. Yeah. He's going to lose. He's, polling-wise, he's doing better than Justin Trudeau right now. <laughs> The other guys can't uh, wow. break through. I mean, the incumbency kind of helps always, uh, and, there, and I guess there's no. They could call an election in Ontario, I suppose, anytime they want. Uh, there was rumors that they were going to call it last fall, but that seemed to disappear. But he may, he also may just decide to go for it in Ontario. Do you think? No, I don't think so. I think no? um, you know, uh, Premier has been asked about this many times. I've heard him speak on it, and he says no. He. Uh, um, he will wait until June of next year. And, mm-hmm. and look, there's a good chance that uh, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford uh, could be returned to power for the same, very same reason. People mm-hmm. don't like the alternatives. Um, 
you know, I don't think it will be quite what it was for John Horgan um, or Blaine Higgs, the premier of New Brunswick, or Scott Moe, all of whom had to go and, and face the electorate during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that they got a bump because they were the leaders handling the pandemic when people were uh, afraid of yeah. what was was happening. Justin Trudeau Conti- Continuity, is, right? You just want some continuity. You don't want to, like, in this chaos, we want to just, just to keep things going. Yeah, so Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are trying to uh, get to the polls before mm-hmm. we potentially have a, a fourth wave of COVID-19. And even though I don't think, and, and a lot of medical experts would say this as well, as well, even if we do have a fourth wave, it will primarily be cases, but not people getting really sick and ending up in hospital. We won't have people dying like we did in the first and second and third waves. It will be, okay, this is going around and people are getting sick, but it won't be like it was uh, over the last 15 months. So he wants to get the vote out of the way before that happens, mm-hmm. because even though it won't, uh, if we have a fourth wave, it won't be as deadly, people will still freak out. And he wants to go to the polls when people are feeling good. Uh, you know, I can't blame them. That's what politicians do. They look for winning conditions. Um, But here's the thing. Everyone's saying that Aaron O'Toole has no hope, that the polls are really bad for him. In the election that put Stephen Harper in Mm -hmm. office, it started with an 11-point gap. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time, I used to work closely with uh, uh, Ipsos, they were the, the polling firm for the radio station in Toronto that, uh, that I worked for at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I opened the, uh, my coverage of that election reporting on a, an 11-point gap. And uh, of course, back then, the, the Martin Liberals were saying they were going to win the biggest majority in Canadian history. And, of course, they didn't. They kind of lost, and Stephen Harper was prime minister for nine years. Was he a minority Point government? Was, is, was that a minority government that first time for Harper? Yeah, he had he two minority governments yeah. and then and then a majority. Right. My, my point being that campaigns do matter, yes. and things can happen. Absolutely. You know, just because things look great for Trudeau right now, he's, for all the, the benefits that incumbency has, he's still only just on the cusp of a majority. Depending on when you look at the national numbers, and if you hear he's got 38, people might assume, well, 38, definitely getting a majority. That's heavily weighted with, you know, Atlantic Canada giving them 50% of their support or more. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's Quebec, tough. but in areas of Quebec where he's going to win, like Montreal, you know, if he gets half the votes in Montreal, he's not going to win that many more seats. Um, but you get out to. Ontario, mm-hmm. yeah, he's got a, a pretty good lead. Manitoba, yeah, Saskatchewan and Alberta, he might pick up a couple, but it's a three-way race in British Columbia still. Mm-hmm. He's so, spending a lot of time know, he, here, it, for sure. He's already he, thrown some money at us that last week. Well, you got transit funding yeah. last week. You got the, the daycare announcement, which uh, I wrote in a column for the Toronto Sun on the weekend. Um, if... Uh, if you're a young parent thinking that this is going to uh, put your kid in daycare, think twice because the liberals have been talking about this since before Justin and I were born. We both turned 50 at the end of this year. Uh, so it's been promised 
many yeah. times, including every election since 93, <laughs> and this daycare thing has not happened. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett uh, all this week. And feel free to uh, follow me on Twitter, George underscore Affleck. Or you can email me if you have any questions or thoughts on the show, george at cknw.com. Or uh, feel free to call our buzz line throughout the show at 604-331-2899. 604-331-2899. So residents of BC's long-term care facility, facilities will soon be allowed to visit with friends and family members without restrictions, provided they're fully vaccinated. Vaccinated. Visitation is being expanded because of the significant success of the province's COVID-19 immunization program. we got, you got to admit it. Joining me to talk about this great moment, I think, for a lot of families is Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. Hi, Isabel. Hi. So this is good news. You know, what are you hearing across your, you know, your network, as it were? Uh, yes, very, very welcome news. Uh, one of the biggest changes that's been made is that you no longer are required to schedule the visit. Okay. That was the sticking point for a lot of family members that by virtue of having to book the visit, they found themselves restricted in terms of how frequently they could visit and for how long they could visit. I think the requirement they no longer need to wear a mask if they're mm-hmm. fully vaccinated, except in the common areas, but okay. I think uh, we can understand it's that. It's kind of like offices or months. the same thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, so I think that, that that is significant. The lifting of the maximum number of visitors, uh, we, we for the last about three months, we've had a limit of two visitors at any one time, but it could be a different two every time. So that's not as profound a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest issue here is, you know, I used to go and see my mom every day or every other day. I'd fit it in on a trip somewhere. That uh, ability to have that kind of spontaneous and more regular contact has returned now. And I think that's going to be key for many family members. Such an emotional time, I think, especially, I mean, we'll get into a bit about the past, but, you know, this this ability to visit and is such an important part of uh, seniors' lives, especially if they're in care. Um, you know, the, is there anything else that people need to think about before they go, though, that the part of that process that they need to think before they go to visit? Well, uh, if they, if you've been fully vac- vaccinated, bring proof of your vaccination. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to see uh, proof of your vaccinations, and then you don't have to wear the mask when you're with your loved one. I think the other thing, George, is that while we've uh, taken the cap off the number of people at any mm-hmm. one time, I would remind folks that for some people in long-term care uh, residents, it's still going to be overwhelming to have a whole bunch of different people. Mm. So think about whether this is, you know, whether you want to rush in with the 15 family members uh, all at once and how that might overwhelm uh, mom or, or the grandmother and, and do it in a, a more staged way that recognizes, um, you know, as, as some people get older, uh, having a whole bunch of different people and following different conversations simultaneously becomes uh, more frustrating. Right. How long before you think it gets back to the way it was? I, my son, uh, every Saturday, would go to a, a long-term care facility in, in the morning and play about an hour's worth of music for uh, these seniors. And it was you know, always very, you know, it's, I was very impressed with him. He did it. He volunteered. Uh, but this, and it was such, a, it seemed to be such an important 
thing for them to have in their lives because they were, you know, in their various, uh, you know, places in their lives. And, and this music, and they, they, he took requests and the music had to learn was quite diverse. Um, but when do you think we'll see some of that kind of stuff come back? Well, I think uh, much of that is returning to normal over the summer. Um, There are some unique uh, aspects of of certain things. We're Mm -hmm. linking a lot to the vaccination status of people, and some of that is linking to whether they have to wear a mask or not, and some of it's linking to, to their ability to freely come and go. So obviously that will evolve a little bit more over the summer, and hopefully the plan is by September we are effectively... Uh, in our post-COVID, uh, in, in acute COVID phase and living with a virus that will circulate, a virus that uh, people are vaccinated against with a vaccine that is highly effective, although not 100% mm. effective. So, But that's true of other viruses and illnesses as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is part of the very important reflection that we're going to have to have on how we managed this pandemic in long-term care and what are the approach we took was really signaling in terms of our underlying appreciation for families, our underlying appreciation that people living in long-term care still have some uh, agencies, some uh, rights, and Mm -hmm. long-term care is their home. And people are living in long-term care for 18 months or two years in, in what's the final mm-hmm. phase of their life. And what are we really valuing? And I, I think we've got a lot of reflection. Mm-hmm. People did things for the best of intentions. But I think as we see the unintended consequences of some of our um, practices we put in place to protect people, I think there are some bigger questions that we need to ask ourselves. That was going to be my next question, but, you know, you think back to a year ago or a year and a half ago, you know, what are those things that we could have done right? What do we do right? What do we do wrong? You know, what's your takeaway from that? And, and that seems to be it. It's like we, there, we need to be more sensitive to their emotional needs, I guess is what you're saying. I think, it, yes, and I think if we had started, uh, it's almost 18 months ago now, mm-hmm. and if we had started out by saying, for the next year, you will not be able to see your loved one at all for four months, and then after four months, only one person in the family is going to be able to see that loved one for the following 10 months, and they're only going to be able to see them once a week for about 30 minutes, Mm -hmm. and they'll have to meet with them in a common area, and somebody's going to have to observe them. You're going to be wearing a mask, and you're going to be six feet apart. That's effectively what we did. Mm -hmm. And if we, I think if we had said that, we we didn't intend, I don't think, for that to be the message. We didn't think that that was going to be what happened, but that is what happened. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to think through Okay, how how did we allow that to happen? And and are you saying that we should have prepared them better the the and to explain it in advance so that they would be psychologically prepared for it or how do we we wouldn't have known what, what was happening how we could have prepared them? Well, I think the the bigger question is um, we the the actions we took were to were to protect mm-hmm. the residents in long term care from the virus. Mm 
And I think what the takeaway is, um, protecting them for what? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when you think about over the period of time that we were protecting people from COVID Mm -hmm. in long-term care, tragically, I I think it was just over 1,000 people in long-term care died from Mm -hmm. uh, COVID-19. But about 7,000 people in long-term care died from things other than COVID. And they didn't get to spend that time in meaningful contact with their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And while we focused on protecting people from COVID, clearly we weren't able to protect uh, people from dying because that happens. And so I I think we need to have a, a bigger discussion of what life in long term, what, what does it mean and what rights do you retain mm-hmm. and this ethical challenge around balancing your rights as an individual living in long term care and your rights around the risks you wish to accept and the degree to which your choices put others at risk. That 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 was one of the biggest, mm-hmm. I think, ethical dilemmas was its communal living. And but I think Part of the the approach we took around the visit restrictions was, first of all, in calling the family members visitors when clearly for some, not all, for some residents, the family members aren't a visitor. Mm -hmm. They're an integral part of their life, and they were a care partner. And we sort of took a blanket approach Hmm. where maybe there were opportunities that could have recognized Mm. this vital role that the family members play and the healthcare system, it's not just long-term care, Mm -hmm. the healthcare system overall is calibrated to, you know, we know what we're doing, let us do it and we will cure you and care for you and keep you safe. And the the role of the family member in long-term care, I, I think we may not have fully appreciated the <laughs> yeah, degree to which they're complex, More complex, more yeah. complex. All right, Isabel, I appreciate uh, you joining me today. And we've got you know, positive days ahead, right? We're looking, it's looking good for the summer and, and hopefully back to whatever the new normal is. Um, but those kinds of ideas, I hope we see implemented uh, at the different levels of government and nonprofit and for-profit and all those things. So I appreciate you being with me today. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, Thank you. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week, and uh, feel free to you know follow me on Twitter, George underscore Affleck. If you want to email me, George at cknw.com. And if you want to jump in and give us your thoughts on our buzz line, 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. And in this half hour, we'll be talking a bit about the uh, fires across the province, and we'll get some updates on that in the second half of this half hour. But first, last week, Pfizer and BioNTech said that they were developing a COVID-19 booster shot to target the highly transmissible Delta variant. The announcement got them, got them in some hot water, actually, and raised more questions about who's in charge and potentially fed into some people's conspiracy theories about, you know, the vaccine programs. To talk about this, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Horatio Bach, adjunct professor at the, at the Infectious Diseases at UBC. Uh, hello, Dr. Bach. How are you? 
Hello, George. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. Now, Dr. Fauci in the States was quite angry uh, with uh, Pfizer for making this announcement without any kind of authority. What happened? Yeah, so uh, what Pfizer mentioned, they have data that has not been published yet saying that the level of protection of the, um, um, that you generate as a result of the vaccination against the Delta variant is fading over time, means that the amount of antibodies that you generated, it looks like they are not good for controlling the disease. Um, again, it's a point that is uh, open for to discussion, basically, and the reason is, you know, is just because Pfizer wants to to do some uh, uh, business or it's a real need. Well, that was a question that came up. People were saying, "Oh, they're just a, a you know pharmaceutical looking to make some more cash." And Dr. Fauci was very clear, saying, "This is not how the process works. You know, the the Center for Disease Control makes the decisions, or the world. You know, there's a process that you follow for this decision making." And and uh, they were apologetic. He said they apologized to him, and they apologized, and it wasn't like they were trying to one up him. But still, it came as a surprise to most of us. And I think it had been rumored that there would be. Uh, booster shots, but I think if for most of us, we're like, oh, I guess this is happening. So booster shots it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned in the past also the same because, you know, all these variants, we don't know what's their behavior, and we see yeah. more and more aggressive variants right now, and I will, con- I will mention that if, um, soon. And the point is, yes, so uh, they, they say they have data, but apparently they didn't apply to the regular channels, you know, you have to apply mm-hmm. to FDA, CDC, and they have to make the decision if needed or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we know that in Southwest U.S., there are a lot of uh, areas that, uh, or pockets, what we call, they were not, I mean, vaccinated, yes. and they have a spike now of the Delta variant. And the point is, you know, the, always is more people are infected, more probability to get the new variant. And now mm-hmm. we are dealing with the Delta variant. There is a new variant on the Delta variant that we call Delta Plus variant. And oh, recently we have the Lambda variant that is uh, apparently uh, looks like it, it, it will be also a, a big problem because it has a different, another mutation that is related to the high transmissibility. Still, there is very low, you know, around the world. I hear in mm-hmm. Canada we have a very low number. But, you know, it's, all, it's just a question of time. Those, they compete between each other, the viruses as well, and then they, that's a problem. The strongest or the more efficient will survive. Takes over. I mean, we're seeing in Canada, I think we're one in 100,000. We've got it way down. We haven't been hit by the Delta variant yet. But the UK, I think it's up to 45 per 100,000. The US is at least three or four times higher than us. Um, is this just in part because... In Canada, we just complied and we took the vaccine. We're at 70% or higher first dose. Uh, we'll be at 70% across the country for second dose. No other country seems to be competing with us on that. And that will, will that help push away the Delta variant for good here in Canada? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, the point is that, um, you know, we still have a group of people that are not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And those is opening the question, you know, these people can be uh, uh, spreading again the Delta variant, but it looks, based on the results we have so far, that even if you are vaccinated with two doses of any vaccine, your probability to end up in the hospital are very, very low. And that's what we want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that has to be clarified to the audience, because yeah. we forget that, is that 
The problem with the COVID, okay, even if you get the disease and you, you recover, the long-term effect, we don't know. We know that a third, a third, a one in three people, they will have long uh, um, disabilities. We don't know how it's translated yet because it's new, but you can find a lot of people claiming that, you know, I used to be sporty, you know, running all the time. Now I cannot even yeah. walk 100 meters. Uh, and that is more and more. So we don't know what is the long-term um, uh, effect. And, you know, if it's a new uh, uh, variant that is coming infecting people that they are already double vaccinated, we don't know either how it's going to be. That's the reason mm-hmm. has to continue to be, you know, uh, 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 with the bars very high just to avoid that because once you get, you don't know how you will end up. Yeah. That's a main problem right now. And yeah. I, I have a friend who, who got COVID way back, like in April last year, and she still hasn't got her sense of taste back. She, she said everything kind of tastes like garbage, which is exactly. terrible. I mean, she just, and there's no idea when it'll come back. I want to ask you a bit about the mRNA vaccine and, and the whole process. You touched on it, but, you know, we fast-tracked that process for COVID. Um, the, the process, that while well, fast-tracked, that's unusual. Sometimes this would take years to get to this point. Um, but we've learned a lot about this this approach to vaccination, the mRNA, you know, uh, and how it teaches our cells. And is there things that we can look at, like, for example, um, HIV, uh, cancer? Are there things that we'll be seeing that will move quicker now because of what we've learned from this process? That is correct. And it's something that is uh, moving. Even the company that developed for COVID was involved in cancer research. So definitely this technology is much easier uh, to develop. It's not like you, you, you inject a dead virus that used to be the traditional mm-hmm. way or inactivated virus. Now, uh, when you talk about cancer, you don't have a virus. So you have to, uh, let's say, vaccinate with specific uh, a piece of uh, protein that your body will recognize. And that is the protein, let's say, produced by the cancer cell. So you can target that. And definitely, I see a huge uh, progress in, in the next year in all the, you know, cancer research or um, many type of uh, other type of diseases, you know, because uh, once you have that, it's very easy to control. And it looks like the, the, the mRNA vaccine are, are, are very good, are stable, and we see the effect right now with the, with the Pfizer. But we have to be careful not to get people too excited because they're, because we went through that, fast track process that's not possible normally is it well in general you know you you are, you are right to say that because it drugs once you put in the market you know until you pass all these uh, trials mm-hmm. and authorize and you have to make a surveillance after years just to see what the side effects that is a normal track for any medicine you put in the market and it's between five to ten years wow. and it's very expensive extremely expensive so only pharma companies can afford that no any institution, university can afford that because we are talking about billions of dollars in, this, in these trials. So definitely it's not we are going to see in the next year the, the MS, a, 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 any a messenger RNA vaccine against cancer, but definitely uh, it takes time. You know, it's years, and I think the technology and the platform is ready to go, and we will see more and more. Why, um, again, why, why wouldn't yeah. governments get excited about solving cancer and seeing the savings that we would have in our healthcare system? Why wouldn't they get as excited about doing that as they have about COVID, solving COVID? I mean, get together and get to, get the solution and save the money. It's cost yeah. heavy in the top end, but you'll save in the long run, right? I just I find it shocking yeah. that they don't. Yeah, exactly. When when you're talking about cancer, you have several issues here. Right. First, 
cancers are completely different. If you talk about prostate cancer or breast cancer mm -hmm. or ovarian cancer, the system is different. It's not like an antibiotic, okay, take this antibiotic that will kill, you know, mm -hmm. this number of bacteria and you are safe. Cancer, you can develop for one type of cancer that definitely is not going to work, guaranteed, to another type of cancer. So you have to develop for each cancer, basically. Hmm. Another point also is that cancers, sometimes, until you detect, they are very, very advanced stage, what we call. It means mm -hmm. that it's, it's something like, you know, uh, there are several stages when you detect that, for example, for example, pancreatic cancer, people live probably two, three months after it's detected because it's not making any pain and, you know, it's not checked uh, routinely. So uh, the vaccine is to be administered before it's starting. And we have so many variations of cancer. Even if mm. you go to lung cancer, you have so many categories from different types of cancer that they produce different proteins. And cancer cells are very smart, unfortunately. Yeah, they can uh, adapt very easy and be resistant to the drug treatment. That's the reason we have sometimes nothing to treat. Okay, so there's hope, but don't be overly hopeful. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Oh yeah, like. yeah, hope, hope is. We we have to be in the optimistic way, no matter what. <laughs> All right, All yeah. right Dr. Bach, thanks for 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 joining me today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You Okay, uh, I'm George Affleck, in for Jill Bennett, and that was pure torture, I think, to a lot of our listeners, but pure, pure joy to another bunch of our listeners. That was the Italian national anthem, of course. Maybe you knew that or not knew it. And it was yesterday at my house, actually, to tell you the truth, was very emotional. Uh, my partner, she's English, uh, her mom was there, uh, and to say they were disappointed uh, is to say the least. Uh, when Italy defeated England to win the 2020 uh, Euro Cup one year after it was supposed to have happened, uh, well, let's just say it wasn't much of a party at my house. Meanwhile, over on Commercial Drive, the Italian fans were going crazy until the wee hours. So that's nice for Italy. So, hey, if you're an Italian, Italian Italy fan, congratulations. If you're an England fan, I'm sorry. There's always next time. Uh, to talk about the game and other sports stuff, I'm joined by Corey Basso, Whitecaps radio play-by-play -play announcer. And apparently uh, I'm a proud Italian supporter, I hear. Hey, Corey, how's it going? Very well, sir. Thank you for having me on the program. And I must say kudos to your producer for that glorious, <laughs> glorious music choice coming in because uh, the party was rocking on commercial drive. I'm pretty sure I've had the Italian anthem on some variety of remix on my iPad for the last oh, 24 hours or so. So it was a glorious, glorious occasion. <laughs> but of course, we, we do tip our hat to the English who put up a heck of a fight. It was a game. I mean, I, I, I don't follow uh, football, soccer, you know, much. I used to play it, but I don't follow much. Um, but my partner, she sure does. And uh, uh, it was the highest highs and lowest lows, as they say in the old sports world. What, what a game. So tell me, give me some of the highlights, your thoughts on it. I mean, the way it ended was one of those, oh, for God's sakes, really? This is how it's going to end? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It was an emotional roller coaster. And just to, to paint a picture of what it means to some of the Italians and, of course, to my family, um, this is more than just a game. This is religion. This is family. Okay. This is friends. This is being a part of something. And we hadn't seen a, a, a final for the Italians since 2012. And my first final was in 1994 when I was six years old. I got to watch this final with my grandparents who are getting on in age and health. So it was an absolute pleasure to be with the family and kind of taking the experience that way. But you're so right. It was, it was heart and throat moments for mm -hmm. 120 minutes. And whether it was England scoring in the first two minutes, Italy, mm -hmm. Italy bundling home around the 60-minute the mark, yeah. and then, of course, the, just the, the biting of the nails through extra time, wondering would it get the penalty kicks. And 
you English fans know just as well as us Italian fans that uh, penalty kicks more often spell pain than joy. Yes. Fortunately for the Italians, they got the better this time. But I know. It's like the a goes on for the English for sure. It's like a gamble, and you know, it's it's just it was just painful to see that, and I, I think that uh, you know to see the the you know Prince George, the little kid, you know, jumping up and down at the beginning, and then at the end, you see William, and it's like tragedy, tragedy, and and you know, England hasn't won. Well, I mean, you look at the on your jerseys, they have these little stars of how many cups they've won and you see Italy yeah. I'm sorry but they've won a few other cups a couple of uh, you know other uh, prizes of the years England really has had a long drought of not winning anything and so for them it was kind of like quadruple tragedy I think for them and of course for, with all the pomp and circumstance being at Wembley and the yeah. fans they were up for it they were ready for it and I honestly thought I honestly thought it was England's game because I didn't know if the Italians were going to be able to, to knock down that big English wall the supporters are so mm-hmm. uh, ferocious at yeah. times and seeing some of the scenes during the game, before the game, after the game, some with a little bit of a sour taste in the mouth, but definitely I think um, it was one of those, it could have it gone either way. Totally. It's just the way, the way it turned out for the English. I, I totally understand when you've had that long of a drought since 66, and yet mm-hmm. the Italians have won cucks. But um, a, a phrase I like to use for soccer, uh, George, it's a 50-cent lyric. It goes, uh, joy wouldn't feel so good if it wasn't, so, uh, wasn't for pain. So eventually England <laughs> will get their cup, and it'll taste so, so much sweeter and Fortunately for the Italians, they're tasting those sweet nectars right now. You know, if you live in Vancouver and you're a Canucks fan, you kind of get used to this. You really are. You really are kind of a seasoned uh, pain uh, person who just accepts loss as a as the norm. <laughs> I think it's like, oh well, just another loss, no big deal. Were there some highlights of the game on both sides that you thought, well, and in lowlights? I mean, I thought there was that point where the the shirt was pulled and and that should have been a red card, but that didn't happen. Were there some other high and low points from your point of view? I mean, on the Chiellini shirt tug, uh, I think it's a yellow card because it was at the halfway line. Had Saka been way up the field and really been on net, I think for sure it's a red card. It's actually a, a cynical but clinical yellow card to take. I, I, it's a yellow card that I was actually proud to take because if he doesn't drag him back by the shirt, Saka's got a free walk on net. And Saka had been very good all tournament long. So, yeah, that was definitely one of the talking points. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the early goal for England kind of spun things on its head and as an Italian supporter in the first 45 minutes, I think me and my grandparents were ready to throw the TV screen out the window because <laughs> they, were just, they were just being far too patient with it. And granted, that's Italy's you know, modus operandi. That's the first way they're going to go. They just seem unnerved that a very calm first goal had gone in. They just stuck to their guns, and eventually they got the goal. I think for the better part of 120 minutes, it was mostly Italy in possession, and they didn't create a, create a ton of chances. Mm-hmm. I actually like the way England played better. They were a bit more direct, but... It all came down to the penalty shootouts, and that's where the roller coaster and the drama happened. It looked like it was England's. Then they smack one off the post, and then Italy miss, and then England miss. It was, believe me, oh man, there was God. enough. I, was... I aged three years. I, all my hairs are gray on my face and on my chin yeah. and on my head. Oh, my goodness. That it was, one it was save, that one save was just insane by England, and you think, okay, okay, now we're good, and they missed it twice. Oh, I know, man. So is that less satisfying for you, though, to, to, for, as an Italian, Italy supporter to win that way? Short answer, no. Uh, (laughs) Winning is winning. It's like, yeah, I like to win. And it is, and it is. But I think it's the fact that we'd lost on so so many so many penalty kicks that I think we kind of we put some ghosts away. We we slayed the dragon. I know a a (laughs) former uh, another play by play man in this town likes to use that phrase, but they slayed a wee bit of a dragon there because they (laughs) as many times as they have won things, they've lost a lot of times heartbreakers on penalty kicks, which to their detriment sometimes they they often play for penalty kicks. They're a little bit too chess match like. They're a little bit too. (laughs) And sometimes I like to see them go 
afford a bit more. And I think that's maybe where England is kicking themselves this morning, that when they did have the ball and they played direct, they looked like they put Italy under the caution. Maybe they're thinking, ah, maybe if we just tried a little bit harder in that 120 minutes mm-hmm. to avoid penalty kicks, this wouldn't have happened. But, yeah, it's, it's a tough way to lose a game, especially when you see afterwards the, the social media banter going mm-hmm. towards the young kids who missed the penalties for I England. Know, There's no place for that in the game. But, unfortunately, the, the coach for England, he put those youngsters in a bit of a tough spot. So you can look at it a couple of ways, but uh, you definitely don't like to see the racial abuse that happened after the game. It's, it's a tough part of football, the penalty kicks, but um, it kind of takes a little bit of the team element out, but it certainly brings drama for the neutral. It does. Sure. Well, and the coach, uh, had this was his redemption because it wasn't race-based, but he, when he was in 96, he missed the penalty shot and lost. they lost that game in 96 because of him. And uh, here, this was his big redemption, redemption for that. And, and it ended almost the same way as 96. It was like, oh, man. But... Uh, you know, I think that it's. Uh, is there anything that they can do now? I mean, can England go off and you know, get to the Olympics and do well? It'll be the UK, but or is there the World Cup coming pretty soon next year? Is there something that there's hope for redemption for them in no, in that respect? Yeah, and and just going back to your to your point about the coach, uh, yeah. Mr. Selskate, he's he's slowly slowly see this English te- England team, excuse me, progress under his watch. So mm-hmm. they've gone to a couple semifinals before this. Now the final. So you figure the next the natural point of progression here is to to win a final and i think with qatar 2022 knock on wood hopefully that all goes according to plan that they, they're probably going to be one of the favorites for sure and mm-hmm. granted that they didn't come up against too too many uh world football stalwarts in this tournament yes they did dispose of germany and they they put up a good fight against the italians um i think that the english name will now um it will spread fear into the hearts of other nations in yeah. football because they've they've done good the last three or four tournaments so i think uh, and this is a bit of a flip side coin now. Now that you've got a whole new expectation for this national football team, whereas before, <laughs> and this is not to be disrespectful, they were kind of the lovable losers of the bunch. Now all of a sudden they've got an expectation to team. make finals and take it to the next level. So that can either go uh, against them or for them. But I think the way they're trending is positive for England. There's a song, "Hope in Your Heart." Was that song? I've been to soccer games where they sing at the Whitecaps. You know, walk on with hope in your hearts. Oh, yes, yeah, they, walk they, on, never walk alone. Exactly. So Whitecaps. Speaking of them, you get what's going on? What's happening? Let's get. Let's get local here and get take it go back to soccer as it were uh what's happening with the whitecaps uh yeah so they made a move today they uh extended the contract of one of their center backs a canadian international Derek cornelius and then promptly sent him out on loan to a greek club uh over in europe which some mm-hmm. might look at oh i just signed him long term and then just you know send him away but Derek cornelius has struggled to get minutes in this Whitecaps squad under mark DeSantos. but he's one of those players where you can see something at the end of the tunnel he's developed quite nicely and i think with more games more minutes perhaps at a higher level um, Derek Cornelius, if and when they do bring him back from his loan, he'll be better for it. So I like the move there from the Whitecaps, mm. if not just to get Cornelius some minutes. Uh, but going to the Whitecaps as a whole, yes, they're missing a couple players at the uh, uh, the Canadian men's national, Cavallini, mm-hmm. Maxime Prempo, I believe Christian Gutierrez just got a tap on the shoulder this afternoon as well with Alfonso Davies out right. injured. Um, so, But they need to get results now. They're bottom of the West and uh, flirting with bottom of the league anyways. Ooh. And they've had a, a less than a positive run for the last seven or eight games. Yes, you've seen spells of brilliance, but they've been far from consistent and they need to start stacking up points as they approach the middle point of the season. They got a tough task this weekend against the LA Galaxy who took them to the woodshed last meeting, so they need to be on their best behavior here. The, the pressure is mounting and they definitely need points. Let's bring that uh, prize back home like it was in 1979 was the last time we won, I think, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Okay, well, let's hope for that. Let's, fingers crossed that here in Vancouver <laughs> we can get something for us, and, and, and maybe that will make my partner, maybe that will make her happy, and we can have something local that will make her happy. So, all right, thanks, Corey. Appreciate you being here. Anytime, my friend. Thank you so much, and Forza Italia. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week, uh, and Jill is on vacation, hopefully enjoying that.
Uh, feel free to call our buzz line today, 604-331-2899. You can follow me on Twitter, George underscore Affleck, or if you want to email me your thoughts or questions, feel free to email me, George at cknw.com. COVID, uh, you know, has dominated the headlines for over a year, but Canada's blood supply needs a boost this summer following a surge in demand. Join me now is Gail Voyer, Associate Director of Donor Relations for the BC and Yukon uh, Canadian Blood Services Office. Hi, Gail, how's it going? Pretty great. Thanks very much for having me, George. You're welcome. I appreciate you being here. Now, how bad is it for, you know, your blood supply? This, obviously, this, you know, the COVID has dominated and, and we have kind of forgotten about you guys a little bit over the last year and a half, but is it bad? Is it, what, what's going on? Um, you know what, we, I, I just wanted to, you know, sort of point out, I guess, that, that our donors have been coming out through COVID. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's, a, that's, a, that's the good news. Um, what's happening now, though, is we are seeing, um, as, you know, not as many donors coming out to our donor centers. So in the month of July, we have about 4,000 open appointments in BC to fill. Mm-hmm. 4,000 appointments to fill. That's exactly. Yeah, wow. so 4,000 open appointments. And so we're, we need 4,000 donors to roll up their sleeves in the next few weeks um, to to uh, help us meet the needs of the hospital patients. And is, it gonna, is things, you know, when they get worse, I mean, I think one of the weird things that's happened in the last year because of COVID is we all stayed home. We didn't drive our cars. There were no you know, car accidents. Things like that weren't happening as badly. So was supply not needed as much over the last year? Um, you know what, we did see um, a bit of a decline in some of the hospital procedures. And like you said, people weren't going out. And, you know, if, if for example, we had more car crashes um, in the previous summer, we weren't mm-hmm. seeing that just because people were staying home. And so as things open up, um, we are, you know, there's potentially more people on the roads and hospitals are actually um, expanding some of their uh, surgeries and procedures that do require blood and blood products. Is it a fairly predictable uh, number that you follow that you need to have on a regular basis as usual? Or is there some times where there's anomalies where it gets a bit like crazy and you suddenly need more? Um, there, we do. We do monitor it, of course, um, just either annually and also weekly. But mm-hmm. um, um, definitely, you know, the need is always there. Um, at certain times of year, we do see it, you know, see an increase in need for for blood donors to be coming out. Uh, the nice part is, is that we are a national system, so we can share right. the blood across the country to make sure it's there for the patients when they need it. That is surprisingly that some other um, body parts and stuff, so like that you have a national system, which we didn't. You, did we always have a national system in Canada for blood? Um, you know, we've managed the system for over um, 21 years. And, yeah. Um, so we've had that national system in place for, for that period of time. Okay. What blood types are, are more crucial? Obviously, there's more unique blood types that you need. Is there ones that need, if people have those blood types, they should be thinking about getting up there more often? Absolutely. So the O negative donor, which is mm-hmm. a universal donor, um, it's the type of blood that's actually used in an emergency situation when we don't have time to, to test the blood type. Okay. So we are doing a call out for O negative donors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will add to that and say that, you know what, we do need all donors. And whether they're, you know, a seasoned donor or you've never donated before, this would be a great time to start. Who can't donate? Because I think that I'm, I, because I was lived in the UK in the 80s. Am I allowed to donate now or can I? I'm still not allowed. Um, no, if you've lived in the UK during um, 1980 to 1989, you would not be eligible. Um, if someone isn't sure if they're eligible, and especially if they haven't checked in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. I would encourage them to just to go to blood.ca and have, take our eligibility quiz. Um, or if they want, they can call into the 1882-DONATE number and ask any of those questions so that we can you know, not waste their time and uh, answer any questions that they may have um, before coming in to donate. The, the the 80s thing, that was mad cow disease, right? I, I seem to recall. Is that what it That's was? That's correct. 
Yes, it was. That's that was so weird. What what is what are the other areas that reasons for not being able to donate? Um, you know, a big one that we're that we're not necessarily seeing until things have just recently opened up would be travel. Um, mm-hmm. Is a big one. Um, sometimes places that people um, have traveled or been to in the last year um, or three three months to a year, I should say, is. Um, if they're traveling to somewhere that's potentially a malaria zone, that okay. would restrict them from donating for a period of time. So um, I, I speak to a lot of donors, actually, and sometimes they'll they'll actually say, oh, you know what, I checked 10 years ago and, you know what, I wasn't eligible. But if that is the case, you know, certainly check again because we are always updating our um, eligibility requirements. All right, Gail, thanks very much for joining me and filling us in on this. Thanks very much, George. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That was Gail Voyer, Associate Director of Donor Relations for BC and Yukon's uh, Canadian Blood Services. If you want to donate, go to blood.ca. You can download their app, Give Blood, at App Store, at the Apple Store or Google Play. Uh, you can also call 1-888-8-2-DONATE. So 1-888-236-6283 to donate blood. And they need 4,000 units in the next couple of weeks.